Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Sunday, it is the 19th of the 9th. Michael, how have you been? I've been very well, Gary, thank you very much. How are you? I mean, you know those days, Michael, where you you feel like people are catching up to you? No. Like, you know, you, you feel like you got somewhere early and people are just... They're starting to kind of go, oh, that was good, wasn't it? Oh, I see. This is a tortured metaphor. Okay. Like three times a week, I need to come up with ways to actually start talking about news stories. None of which add together. Like, I, I need you to work with me on this. Okay, it's like a segue. I wouldn't, like, it's not even a segue, Michael. It's a desperate plea to get this on track. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. No, just get there. You find you're ahead of people, Gary. I'm sorry, what do you mean? In what sense do you find yourself getting ahead of people? Now I just feel like you're being deliberately difficult. I just want to say, listeners, you've heard it. I've done my very best to be helpful and to be friendly and engaged and to meet him within whatever bizarre fucking metaphor he's at. And this is the attitude I get. And I can tell you, this is the best, this is the best side you're hearing now. The kind of emotional and other the abuse that I get, I mean, it's just, it's scarring, frankly. If there was some place that I could go that would be, if I could feel safe, I would have gone there. What happened, Gary? Yeah, for all the people who send in messages saying I bully you, I'm taking this as an indication that I don't bully you enough. <laughs> so, what did we get right? Or what did you get right? Or what has been got right? There have been two things that we've been talking about, I think, the last while. So, we've had the Slonchiker thing, where we have been... Pointing out, I'd say for years now, the Slonchik Air is, is, is not going to work and it's going to collapse inevitably and it was never going to work and it was never really intended to work. And actually it was a really good example of why if we get all of the political parties together and they all agree with something, they'll come up with something totally unworkable. So that's one thing, that's, that's its own thing. And then the last while we've also been talking about um, energy. And this is something we've been talking about for a couple of years as well. Carbon taxes, the impact of carbon taxes, that they're going to make people's lives worse. And not only are they going to make their lives worse, but they have to make their lives worse or they don't function as carbon taxes. I'm not being smart or rhetorical here. That is literally the point of carbon taxes. They are taxes designed to change behaviours. And if the tax doesn't make one behaviour at least less pleasant or more unpleasant or more difficult or more costly in some way, well then... It, it isn't working. The point of them is to make you miserable in order to change your habits, change your wicked carbon-based behaviour. Yeah, so we've, we've been beating that drum for a while. More recently, we've been talking about some of the problems in electricity supply that we're going to see this winter. And actually, from hearing Eamon Ryan talk recently in the Dáil, I would say every winter until about 2025, <laughs> yeah. at the very least. And the last kind of weeks or week or so those uh, those concerns about electrical supply have gone beyond us and beyond the business posts who've actually been doing a ton of stuff on this and are really on top of it and you've started to see politicians in the doll and the other kind of mainstream papers starting to publish articles michael which don't look good about the electrical supply about rampant price increases and markets going totally out of control and how, oh, this is a good one, how in most of Europe this has led to the governments doing things like removing the taxes on, you know, heating oil. Because, you know, with the prices going mental, they need to keep those costs down. Because if you don't, well, then the poorest are going to be hit hardest. You're going to see a lot of fuel poverty. And if you have a bad winter again, people will freeze to death. There is only one thing in fairness, Gary. Very few of those people vote for Fine Gael. Are the, are, are the Greens, are the Greens by the way. No, I mean, with the Green Party, a couple of people freeze to death. There are going to be some members of the Green Party who are happy about that. 
surprising amount of the Green Party just don't think people should be there. Like, humanity as a whole should be there. But they're always telling you this, and they're never committing suicide, so I don't know how much I believe them. Oh, I believe everything they say. They're Greens. They're not your run-of-the-mill politician who's just in it for the power and the glory and the glamour and the money. They're in it because they want to save us from ourselves, Gary. You have to respect that. So anyway, in relation to Slonchaker, we'll start with the energy, but in relation to Slonchaker, we've had a former uh, chief of the HSE come out and say that Slonchaker is slowly collapsing. We've had one of the top uh, Slonchaker chiefs who quit saying that the reform needed for it is impossible, which would then, you know, by extension, Slonchaker isn't a runner. But on the electricity thing, the last kind of week have seen... Particularly, I think Sinn Féin TD is starting to ask questions about this, about, like, what's happening with all these price increases? Because prices have gone up massively, which I, it's probably not something that will come as a shock to listeners, because you've probably noticed it. Because you're paying more for it. Yes. But also, like, what's happening with supply? Are we going to have rolling blackouts? If we have rolling blackouts, is that not kind of ridiculous, given, you know, that we are a first world nation? But an interesting little story that's uh, actually in the Business Post again, there is a interconnector between France and uh, Britain. Actually, I think there's two. One of them caught fire. Now, no, sorry, Gary, I just just have to say, the interconnector, which is found where? Traditionally on the ocean bed. And it caught fire? Yes. <laughs> I'm so, I want to know how that happens. How does an electrical cable, an electrical cable, this is not like, it's not gases, it's not oil or anything. It's electricity, and it's a cable, it's electricity cable, and it's under the sea, and it caught fire. I'm sorry, I don't think that can just go on commented. I want, I want somebody to answer that question for me, because I, I think that's, that's well, at least as interesting a story as anything else. You know, I suspect that it's actually that uh, a connector caught fire, probably a land-based connector. Well, that would be less fun. That would be less fun. So just imagine the cable itself caught fire underwater. Mm-hmm. It's probably not exactly what happened, but it is the funnest thing. So you might say, what the fuck do we care if a cable between Britain and France caught fire? Because Britain, as we all know, is a net importer of electricity. So who cares? And why does that impact on Ireland? And you might say, ah, yes, you see, it is a net importer of electricity. But there is also an interconnector, obviously, between Ireland and England. And it's been used as like an emergency power supply. So like in 2019, we took 2% of our electrical demand from it. Now, this year, we've taken 10% of our electricity from it because things have been going badly here. So that thing that was once just an emergency backup was now 10% of our power. And that's just been taken off the table. They say they're going to have it back up within uh, about a month. But when it comes back, it's only going to be on about 50% capacity. Okay. So on that, the Irish grid, which is just dropping amber alerts like nothing. And, you know, the concern of rampant rolling blackouts in the winter is now going to be down probably about 5%. And <laughs> no one seems quite sure if we have 5% to spare. Well... Five percent is a lot. I mean, and, and considering we had two amber alerts in the space of four days last week, where we were getting down to the pin of our collar, I'd say five percent is. I'd say five percent is as much as, as as much of a gap as we've had. So just before this, just before this happened, Eamon Ryan in the Dáil said that he would hope that we would have, a, you know, a consistent power supply this winter. But you know you can't. Th- some things can happen, and you can't. You can't. Uh, you can't know, Michael, before things go wrong. And then an interconnector caught fire. And then an interconnector caught fire. Yes. 
really, really would be good at this point, Michael, if we had over the, uh, what was it, 100 and something million in uh, foreign generation mm-hmm. capabilities that they wanted to buy in. And then they signed off on it. And then there was a legal challenge because there was an, an argument the procurement had been incorrect. And yes. then upon receiving that legal challenge, the department immediately dropped its plans. Probably would have been a good thing if that hadn't have happened and we had the additional 100 million worth of generation. The thing when they dropped the plans, the things that I found concerning, puzzling, was that along with that announcement came the other announcement, that they had no plans to pursue alternatives. That I find out. Maybe, maybe it's because they've been told that the plants that are offline are going to be all back online. Uh, so we're going to get a rest- we're missing 15% of our capacity at the moment. Do you know what? Here's a question that maybe somebody out there, because I've been asking around, and I, may, I probably asked other people. What, do, you, do you remember, Gary, back in around 2012, there was an American exploration company that was all excited about the possibilities of extracting gas from Leitrim. There was an estimated six. What was it? Six trillion, or was it six? About six billion cubic uh, meters of uh, natural gas uh, available between Leitrim and Fermanagh area, but all sort of that bit around maybe South Donegal as well, and then also significant uh, amounts had been found in Clare also. But it was going to have to be fracking. Fracking is has become this word. Uh, which is very bad. Fracking is very bad. It sets your tap water on fire and poisons the children. Nobody is talking about revisiting the possibility of getting our own gas, natural gas, at all. Or, or have I missed that? Michael, that would, that would involve planning from the government. And we're not, we're not doing that. Government is doing things now. Things that don't really make sense together. Things that don't link together. I mean, they've recently, there have been a release of all of the uh, tax analysis documents. And I've just been going through them. And Michael, I might shock you that uh, a couple of areas in those documents where you look at and just go, that just, uh, that's actually directly contrary to other areas of government policy. Okay, I'll give you an example, right? We know that the government is going to push very, very hard to increase the sales of electric vehicles in the country, right? We also know that, by the way, the other half, that while the Department of Transport might be saying that the Department of Finance is saying that we have to stop all of the subsidies on electrical vehicles because we can't afford them anymore, so that's a bad thing. We're doing this because we care about the environment, okay? We all care very, very much about the environment, and it's the children. And we all care about the children and the oceans and the dolphins and stuff. And that's great. Now, the United States was the only country that signed up to the Paris Accords and then didn't sign up to the Paris Accords that actually met the, uh, surpassed indeed, the commitments of, of carbon reductions from the car, the, uh, the Accords. They are, their carbon emissions are down, well, it's 13% over the last X number of years. And that's pretty well all down to the fact that they've moved over very significantly to the to energy generation from natural gas. And where has that natural gas come from, Gary? Hmm. Where, Michael? Fracking, Gary. It's come from fracking. Now, if we are really interested in actually doing the climate change thing and reducing carbon emissions, we can either go down the nuclear way, but at this stage, I, you're talking years because, Jesus, how long it would take to build a nuclear power plant in this country. I don't know. Even if you were just just become a dictator, it was the only way to do it. 
we can we can sit on our thumbs and wait for someone to come up with a fantastic new technology that works in a different way, or we can start to shift over our power and production and become less reliant on others and get the natural gases. There's absolutely no sense in any of the reporting or any of the discussion about the new technologies that are available, the efficiencies that are available to fracking, that fracking is a, is, has evolved and changed as, uh, as an extraction technique. And many of the concerns that once previously existed now have been resolved. And I'm not, this is not meant to be an ad for fracking, but simply, even at the very basic, it's a question. I have no sense that we have any solution to what is very quickly going to become an acute problem in Ireland. We, what's the, what's the, the business post, to be fair, has been talking a lot about the problems in energy con- generation in Ireland, right? Yeah, and to be fair to him, it's, it seems to nearly entirely be um, Daniel Murray, who's yeah. one of their, uh, actually, I think he's their political correspondent, but he is really being on top of all of this, uh, this sort of thing. The front page of the, the Sunday Business Post this week is a story, which is that Intel were planning, or Intel are going to be building a, what they call a mega data center. And, they may, and there are three countries on the short list, Ireland, Germany, and Poland. We had been given a, to understand previously that we were kind of favorites we, on the short list. It is now being indicated that Intel have some very serious concerns about building it here because they have concerns about the guaranteed uh, energy supply. I'm not interested specifically in the issues around whether or not we should be building data centers and the value of the, otherwise the data centers, but rather the point that we, we referred to before, Gary, is how is it possible that a developed economy is in a situation where foreign investors are making a decision to invest or not invest in us because they're not sure if the lights are going to stay on. Now, I, I think it's important there on the Intel plant. The Intel plant is not a data center. This was going to be a microchip plant. They were talking about 10,000 jobs. I would very much doubt that the entire data center sector in this country put together, Michael, hires 10,000 people. Sorry, I misspoke. Yeah, this is a 10,000 job chip manufacturer. I mean, and by the way, these are not what people dismissively call yellowback jobs or Mac jobs. These are, these are good jobs, 10,000 of them. And we might lose out on that kind of thing because we can't guarantee that when they turn, when they, that when you, you plug in the heater, there will be electricity in the wall. This is madness, lads. No, what there is, this is going to require a direct guarantee from the government to Intel that they will have power. They can't give it. Eamon Ryan in the doll in response to a TD's question when he was talking about this, there was no, we're going to certainly have power. There's, we hope that we will, you know, 2022 to 2025, we hope that we'll be able to uh, to hit the targets. There's a mismatch between it. They're already putting through orders, or they're going to be putting through an order shortly, for over 100 million in genera- uh, foreign generator capacity for next winter. Sorry, Gary, no, come on. How... We're, what kind of what kind of shit head these people their their notion of a plan for this economy is 
which stations were going to close and they have apparently no concern strategically to plan to replace and expand that. In 2020, the Germans, the most green economy in Europe, which has been electing Greens to their parliament, get on for 50 years, where green politics was invented in 2020 because of concerns about production, the Germans opened one of the largest coal-fired electricity generating plants in Europe. And if you, what are we doing? We're closing turf burning plants and replacing them in what? With nothing. We've stopped people uh, exploring for natural gas or oil in our waters. We haven't, we're not even talking about the fact that we have uh, shale gas supplies that are, would be sufficient to meet the actual energy needs of the whole country. But we won't do that because of inverted commas, environmental concerns. This is a fucking disaster of planning, health planning, energy planning, education planning. I, what are these people doing? We're paying them a hundred grand a year to do what? And this, I mean, this is something directly under state control. This is the sort of thing that nearly everyone agrees should be, there should be state direction on. And they have bollocks it up immensely. I mean, Intel in their existing plants have, I don't have the exact figure, but they have invested billions, maybe over 10 billion by this point. And we coming, like, we're, you know, coming out of Brexit, coming out of COVID, look like we have just fucked up a chance to get another 10,000 jobs in this country. I don't want to try and beat, beat this to her today, but I just, I one last sort of stab at it. This is not something, Gary, which is complicated. This is not something which has suddenly turned up. This is not as a consequence of a tsunami which knocked out our capacity in some places or an earthquake. It's not as a result of a sudden disappearance of some vital source of energy that we had previously relied on. This is simply the result of a small, continual, incremental increase in, in consumption and deliberate choices to reduce capacity. This is really, really not complicated. And they have left us in a position where we are, other than the fact that Irish citizens, especially poor Irish citizens, who have increasing who are living very often in lower quality lower insulation lower energy quality housing are going to be facing uh, in, uh, punitive bills if they are going to be burning things like coal or turf or brickets or wood and if they want to, if they want to turn on electricity they're going to be fine that's going to get more and more expensive as well leaving that aside, we're now putting the economic health a la grande of at, at a really serious level at who is who is responsible for this? Who has? I, I want someone to look at me and tell me that this was not predictable, and then explain to me how this was not predictable. I'm going to ask you, Gary. Be my be my be a devil's advocate because I'm genuinely con, con, confused. How did this happen? Am I missing something? Seriously, is there some weird, complicating factor that makes this a far more complex? equation than we've been talking about. I have a feeling that if this 
if it starts going ahead and, and it becomes confirmed that we've lost this plant, the government is going to be largely unable to answer exactly why we have lost this plant. And there's going to be, like, they're going to start throwing out words like climate change and, you know, I need to be a moral leader and energy efficiency and the need to cut down, which I think are going to be thrown around more as a sort of we need to say something than we have any explanation for why this has happened. I don't think they're, this is going to reflect well on them. I would also say that when you're talking about things that are predictable, I think the most predictable outcome here would be that we somehow swing this plant, they select iron as a winner, and then it spends the next decade in planning objections. Yes, and then they decide to fuck off anyway. It's almost like, Michael, policy choices over the medium and long term can impact on the country's well-being. And you say it's like the choices have consequences and the government's deciding to do things, even if it's because they really think they're super duper ideas and that, you know, there was that really good UN report all about it, that sometimes those choices have negative consequences. Yeah, and, you know, if you engage in a political ideology, Michael, that says that you can't expand, let's say, generator capacity or build generators or nuclear power, if you, you, know, you want to go crazy, will over time lead to actual problems as demand for electricity expands and you can't meet it. It just, it just all seems to link together somehow, Michael, if only someone... It's all voodoo nonsense, Gary, there. That's your voodoo nonsense. I, I do very much enjoy that. <laughs> The, the near joke about wind energy is like, yeah, it's, it's sustainable and renewable, but what if the wind doesn't blow? Has actually come back and went, actually, one of the reasons for this has just been a low level of wind. Un I, I want to quote the, the newspapers. They said unprecedentedly, precedented low levels of wind. Michael, I have a feeling it was very much precedented. <laughs> I have a feeling. Also, the... Uh, it, we should not dis, discount or, or, or not fail to remember that while these turbines do not work when the wind does not blow, it is also true, Gary, if the wind blows too hard or the weather is too cold, that they also have to be turned off. So it's much like Goldilocks and the porridge. Some, sometimes it's too hot, sometimes it's too cold, and sometimes it's just right. But that's a fairly risky model to base the survival of your whole economy on, that we're going to always get just the right amount of wind. If only, Michael, before embarking on something like this, the government had checked. You ask someone, perhaps with expertise in the field, what will happen if we do this? Like, what are the risks of doing this before we implement a series of national policy that, you know, have pretty fundamental impacts on the people of this country. That seems like something you should do before doing something like that, but it doesn't look like that was done. And ask really hard, I mean, in fairness, these are very hard abstract questions, like what would happen to a system which relied on wind power if there was no wind for a few days? God, Jesus, I don't know. Is there anybody be able to work out that kind of hypothetical you need some kind of supercomputer, Gary, to get to, to work that one out. Mm, yeah, it's almost it's almost like shutting down power plants. And actually, I think the problem is is both shutting down power plants and refusing to build new power plants. But that's it. I mean, I don't. But if you're shutting down power plants and you're not adding to capacity elsewhere, how hard is that, Gary? 
Really? How hard is it to work out that unless you are in a place where you have declining energy needs, and again, sorry, but beating dead horses here, this is a government whose every single push is towards greater consumption of electricity. Virtually all of your houses now are heated, the new houses are heated through electricity. They want all of our cars to be electrical. They want the buses and the trains to be electrical. Everything has to be electrical. And you kind of got the sense. Also, we, we live in a world where every house is getting more and more and more technology and more devices which consume more and more electricity. That might be a clue, Gary. Make more electricity. And if you shut down your plant, maybe you have to look at, well, no, if we're shutting one down, we are opening one over there, aren't we? Or we're not. What are we doing? We're hoping that someone will come up with a really nice green technology which will harness tide power. Okay, tide power. And somebody has that technology. No, they don't have it. But they're working on it. Oh, yeah. They've been working on it in Bordeaux since the mid-70s. And they're sure that they're going to make a breakthrough one of these days. That's not a great basis to run, run, plan for an economy here. There are many policy things that make me feel like Cassandra. Uh, for those who don't know that reference, Cassandra was a mythological figure. She was the uh, daughter of the King of Troy, I believe. She's the daughter of Priam and Hecuba. Uh, she was provided by the gods with the gift of prophecy. But then she pissed off the gods, or more exactly, she pissed off Apollo. Because she gave she gave Apollo the bombs rush. She didn't fancy him. He cursed her so that she had the gift of prophecy, but no one would believe anything she said. So she was cursed to constantly tell people the terrible things were going to happen. No one would ever believe her. There's many things in, in policies in Ireland where I felt that way. It's clearly going to end disastrously, but no one believes you. But I never thought that one of them would be we should ensure we have enough power to enable the country to function. I just assume that was at such a base level of competency that no one could deny that was actually the situation we should be in. That the country should be in a place where you can turn on a fucking light in winter and not have to worry that you're going to throw the country into chaos. And for context, that this risk is being run not... In the circumstances where, oh my God, imagine if somebody threw a bomb into one of our power stations or imagine if there was a massive storm and they damaged the interconnector or what if, no. The what if in this scenario is, what if it got really cold in December and we opened a couple more factories and our economy started to return to normal after COVID and then more than 10 people in Clontarf decided to boil a kettle all at the same time. What if? That's... We will come back to this, I'm sure, Gary, but for now we should move on because I'm giving me a headache. So, Slanchiker, the other thing that people have kind of caught up to us on. <laughs> oh, God! With Tony O'Brien, former chief of the HSE, he's, he's out saying this is going to shit. Well, what I thought was quite interesting was the former chairman of Slanchiker, who you may recall we were talking about how he had resigned. Um, it was maybe last week? Actually, it could even be this week. He resigned recently, anyway, and we were saying 
there is some interesting stuff being said about this. Quietly, you should pay attention to the story. Well, he's come back, and he has said, again, this is the former chairman of Slunchaker, fundamental failures of governance, accountability, and commitment have made it impossible to implement Slunchaker. And that rapport, that reform that would be needed to actually implement Slunchaker is impossible. Which, Michael, is exactly what we've been saying for... Uh, when did Slunchaker come into existence? Three years ago? Yeah, whenever that was. And uh, because it's been clear that that has been the case. But now it's not just us. Now it's also the former chairman of Slunchaker. And then you have Tony O'Brien, the former HSE chief, in the Business Post, writing about how Slunchaker is slowly collapsing. And that people are basically just going, well, what can you do? And he's saying they should do more than that. And I'm saying, well, that's about all you can actually do because it can't be done. It was clear it couldn't be done. And I've seen people coming out, Michael, and saying, well, the real problem is the private healthcare sector, that they're pushing back against this. That's total fucking nonsense. Private healthcare uh, sector in Ireland has no lobbying power. No one cares what they think. It should, I would actually... For once, I would say it would be nice if they did. Then you would actually have them listening to people who have expertise in this area about where you should put a children's hospital and when you should build it and how you should build it and how you could avoid costing, well, let's say, let's let's go for a figure. I'm going to bet it'll end up being two and a half billion at this stage because have you looked at the recent look, the figures for the increase in materiel and for labour, Gary, I, I, I think we're, I think we're, I'm happy enough that we're going to get up there for two and a half billion now, because of the, at least in fact, because of the massive increases we've seen in material and in labour. I think it's going to be happily up at two and a half billion. And you know what, Gary, if the private, if people involved in private medicine were not shunned and considered to be a hissing and a byword simply because they are in private medicine. That could have been avoided. But no, that is not the case. I mean, the only thing, the reason why private medicine in this country might be a little bit nervous is that there, there's a not insignificant lobby in the middle of all of this which would actually like to effectively make private health care illegal. Oh, in the name of fairness, Michael. Oh, yeah, absolutely, in the name of fairness. Because, you know, it's, it's unfair that if you have money that you can get better health care than someone who doesn't. The only problem is they might be right about that, but then they say it'd be fair to get rid of private healthcare, which is to say it is unfair for people to get better healthcare service. So it is fair for people to get worse healthcare service and not let them pay for it, which kind of indicates that it's fair to let a certain amount of people die. Well, yeah, in fairness, it would be, I think. And I think we all accept that. And I think that in the if we were looking at the thing properly and seriously, I think we'd all accept that if a bunch of people that we don't know and don't care of were to die in the name of equality, that would be a, that would be a good thing. The problem, there is a slight problem there, is that what they're actually saying is not that healthcare should be restricted, that you can't have people get getting better healthcare just because they've got some more money than you. What they're saying is that it's okay to have better healthcare if you have more money, but you have to have a lot more money. So, for example, you get rid of high, private healthcare. But that will still mean there will be people who will be able to go and fly to India or 
Japan or to the United States for private health care because they're very wealthy. But that's okay because if you're very wealthy, then, you know, at the end of the day, you're probably, you're doing something really good and cool. So, you know, you deserve better health care. It's, it's that kind of upper middle class people, they shouldn't get better health care because that's not fair. And so wonderful public health people come out and say, well, in the name of fairness, we have to get rid of private health care. And every time they do, all I can think is that, um, well, private health care, one of the major advantages, you will be seen more quickly. That's where the unfairness incre- comes from. Yes. But in relation to things like cancer, Michael, being seen quickly massively increases how solid the outcome is going to be for you. And that may be to the level of living or dying. And I just, every time I hear someone say it, I do just want to ask them, you know, let's say if your wife, uh, you know, terrible situation, you thought she might have cancer, would you think it was fair if I deliberately stopped you from trying to speed up the uh, the process of determining whether or not she had cancer in a way that might kill your wife? Would, I mean, because that's what you want to do, really. And I just, I just don't think a lot of them would say that that was a fair situation, Michael. I think they might say in, you know, in the widespread sense, yes, it would be fair. But in the individual circumstances, of course, it doesn't apply in that case. But, you know, to do it nationally would be perfectly fair. If you were a person of principle, Gary, a serious person who cared about the wider community, you know, I think that you maybe you would take that stand and refuse well, not a, it, it's not unknown, Gary. I mean, they may not like their wives. No, even apparently, anyway, it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky one, Gary. It's a, it's a toughie, but there you go. Slaughter care is bizarrely, crazily, apparently in trouble. Who, who, who could have predicted this? Our, our track record on implementing new healthcare policies is so positive. You'd wonder. I remember, I mean, God, the capacity that we have. I mean, these rats in cages with cocaine habits learn so much more quickly and efficiently than Irish politicians. A long, long time ago, Philly Gale were looking around for a new health policy and they had decided that the Dutch formula was going to be the one that worked. This was not long before the collapse, or not the collapse of the government, it was the end of the, gov- the, end of the term, but the well-anticipated scutching that Fianna Fáil was going to get at the 2011 elections. Everybody knew who was going to be in government. So the then Minister for Health, which was Mary Harney, who had been listening to tales of woe for many years from her Dutch counterpart, talking about the fact that their system was basically bankrupt and it was just staggering from one crisis to the next, went through intermediaries to the to Fine Gael and said to them, Basically, lads, and this is not for political advantage. It's, I'm not trying to do anything. I just tell whatever you do, do not choose the Dutch model. It doesn't work. There are massive problems with it, particularly the way that you're going to go. Did anybody listen to her, Gary? Did anybody believe her? Did anybody go and check that this was true or false? Apparently not. So we just... And the, the best of it was, I listened at times to the then leader of the party, uh, Fine Gael, who was then Taoiseach, and to the Minister of Health. And I was left with a very strong impression that neither of them understood their own health policy. 
So let's we fast forward another 10 years. Do you have a strong sense, so when you listen to people in government talk about Slauncha Care, that they have a firm grip on the detail of what Slauncha Care is, rather than simply like a title for an essay that you might write in school to win a prize from the Department of Health? Do you, do they really understand what the details are? Or in fact, are there any real details of what this would mean? Slanchikar, when it was put together, I can remember the meetings that went into Slanchikar and the various political deliberations. And if you remember, Michael, it was this glorious chance to get all of the parties together and come forward with a unified vision for the health service. Yeah, you had to take the politics out of health. You had to have a long-term vision that everybody could agree on. It was going to be great. Yeah, and I can remember seeing the results of some of those meetings and immediately knowing this was going to be a fucking disaster. And it was very clear from the initial meetings, even before the results had come in, that far from taking politics out of it, what they had actually done was they had given people the chance to put together a document which was an absolute wish list of things so they could say they supported it, yes. but never have to fucking implement it. And uh, Fianna Fáil played more than a small part in that. Yes, true, true. And so now when it's, when people are talking about do they understand Slanchiker, Slanchiker isn't a thing. Slanchiker is just a branding exercise for good things. And it was always going to fail because it could never do anything but fail. And now everyone is... Sh- we're meant to stand around and be shocked that this thing, which was never designed to fucking work, it was designed to look good, can't be implemented. But Gary, and not, not being sarky picky here, is it really accurate to say it, it is designed? Or are you getting a bit closer to the truth when you talked about it simply as a brand? Isn't this fundamentally a brand which has been created without really worrying too much about what the product is and if we can get a strong enough brand and a popular brand then we can fill that shit in later but it's it's not that we have designed a system and then we have called it slauncher care we've thought of something called slauncher care and then we're working the basis oh we'll, we'll we'll fill in the details later really i mean it isn't designed is it the, actually the, the, the funnest story i remember from this because i just it was just very uh it just it just amused me. So, like two years after Slanchikar was um, was brought out, Finnafal put out a press release that said that it was deeply worrying that two years after the publication of the uh, the, the plan for Slanchikar, the costs were still being evaluated. Yeah, <laughs> and how terrible that was because they had they had published an implementation strategy, and um, you know how is it the minister? hasn't come back with a strategy and uh, without the costs being evaluated. And uh, there's a little bit of, hmm, hmm, Slanchiker castings two years later. Still not evaluated. Hmm, I wonder what that is. I wonder, why, why could that possibly be the case that they haven't put a price on it? I know, Gary, I don't know about you, when I'm shopping online and I go onto a site whether it's maybe a restaurant or a, or a, a, a furniture site or a clothes site or whatever, and it says those, it says instead of saying twenty three euro fifty, it says P O A, you know, price on what's it P O A? What's A stand for? So basically, you have to ask them the price, 
I'm very nervous of places where they don't tell me the price because it always seems to me that that's a way of saying to people like me, fuck off, son, You're, you have found yourself in the wrong place. Anything which doesn't have a price tag on is going to be very, very expensive. But I also just enjoyed it because in that statement, if I remember correctly, Finnefell talked about their great work on the Slanchiker. Oh, yeah. Like they've done all this fucking work. Like they've gone digging mines. What was it? Was the um, All Party Committee on the Future of Healthcare? Yeah. Was it, wasn't it? And then like, oh, we did all this great work and no one has evaluated it. Maybe they have. Maybe if you're paying attention, this is the evaluation. Yes. No, I, I think we were talking about it at that point. And there was a little bit of, oh, no, it has been evaluated. It's just not possible. <laughs> it's just, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Have you seen what this is going to cost? And it's not, it's not actually just about the cost. It's also that there are seats. Well... The thing is, some of it might even be doable, and some of the costs might be. But it has always been the concern, of, at least, or at least one concern, that care would end up being very like its predecessor when the HSE was brought in. We, we brought the HSE, well, now, why we brought in the HSE? We brought it in to provide a condom. It's basically a prophylaxis to protect the government and the Minister for Health from responsibility for the health service. Because they always really do me as HSE, so you want to talk to them, right? What can I do? I'm only the Minister for Health, which is a nonsense. And anything, anytime any government wants to sell, sell you, dear listener, something independent, you know you're being sold rotten fish. Because if it was actually independent in a good, positive way, the last thing in the world a politician would want is for it to be instituted. If it's independent and they want it, that means it's a way for them to say, well, we have no responsibility, so you can't blame us for that. Now, so they, but they run the reasons they said is because if we're going to centralize it, we're going to get rid of the regionals, we're going to centralize it, we're going to create efficiencies, it's going to be so much better, it'll be just fantastic. How many jobs were eliminated by the efficiencies created through a unitary administration and bureaucracy, Gary? None. Zero. And I think, Gary, that in itself is almost heroic to actually achieve no efficiencies. That is my belief. In a kind of a Sir Humphrey, yes, yes, Minister moment, they may indeed have a take, had to take on extra staff in order to administrate the problems associated with the fusing of the various levels. And I have a very, I, I suspect I'm not alone, but the problem with Sanchuk, one of the problems at least with Sanchuk is, all it will be is rather than replacing the HSC in a kind of a root and branch way and with a genuine strategic vision of how healthcare will be managed, it'll be melded onto it, glued onto it, welded, melted, shoved into it, and it'll just create some kind of another, what do you call creatures mythology where you've got two creatures together? Chimeras. Yes. It's, you're going to have a horrible chimera, just to just <laughs> a health chimera. <laughs> I don't know why that makes me laugh, but there you go. I'm easily amused. One of the one of the ways that you can actually tell government policy is going to be a shit show is this: Does anyone try and attach themselves to it? Any politician and try and attach it to their name? Because if it's going to be a good policy, a good thing that people will like. Yeah, you're not going to run out of politicians who want to be attached to it. But you saw it with this, you saw it with the vaccine rollout as well at the start, where they knew it was going to be in shambles. Now, it has since then massively come together. But 
it was really bad for a while. Very, very bad. And no one wanted to touch it. And now actually they have the problem that because no one wanted to touch it at the start, now it's going well, you can't really attach yourself to it. But Slanchiker, one of the first things they did with Slanchiker was try and get it as far away from anyone politically as they could. So it's no party's child. No one is directly responsible for it. There are independent committees. It's technically under the Department of Health. It was meant to be under, I think, the Department of Taoiseach, of the Taoiseach, because it was meant to be such a high priority. And that was never fucking happening. No. And it's just, it's just a thing. It's just happening. To be fair, back in the day when you had the reforms, Mary Harney attached herself to her reforms. She was messianic, or at least missionary, about, say, you know, step-down care and local, uh, local, bringing the local health centres, trying to drive, create capacity outside of the acute bed systems, all that stuff. She associated herself with it because she, it was genuinely her policy. Uh, I can't see that there's anybody that you could say that this is their policy. And I'm fairly sure that even if you could, you might say that it was their policy, they wouldn't admit it. The concern that the government has at the minute is is partially these resignations, but it's also who else is going to resign. And there are murmurings that uh, this has led other members involved with the uh, implementation to consider their own positions. Now, a lot of them were coming to the end of their terms anyway, and there would have to be a renewal. But there is a sort of, is it better to... um, to jump now rather than go down with this thing or be associated with it if it goes down all anybody resigning would do would give the government an opportunity to put in better more biddable more pliant more compliant people into it and that's just a good thing the effect allowing that one of course may always be wrong but the effect that somebody on a board somewhere has on public opinion or voting or intention because they resign i i i don't see it as the problem with healthcare is if you start to raise expectations and people have the notion that things are going to get better and they don't, then you have a problem. The uh, I will say this, the, the Tony O'Brien article in the Business Post is a bit of a mess. It comes close at points to actually providing useful information, mm-hmm. but the things it highlights as issues are primarily not important. And then it starts talking about, you know, where would Obamacare be if uh, Obama had taken a narrow and defensive approach? And you're like, if even the people who want to replace Slanchicare with something else, like Obamacare is their high bar. Jesus. Is, uh, that is not a high bar, lads. There are innovative and highly performing public and private healthcare systems all over the world. Yes. Uh, America is not one of them. Really, really not. It's a shit show. And Obamacare, in certain extents, made it less of a shit show, and in other extents, made it more of a shit show. It, depend- it, it, depended, which, it depended which bit of shit you were measuring, doesn't really, didn't it? Uh, Hong Kong has a really interesting system. Well, Hong Kong had a lot of really interesting systems. This is true. Whether it will do in the future is for speculation. I mean, I would say Taiwan has a really interesting single-player healthcare system. But yeah, like, yeah. Singapore. Mm. We, we seem to be going heavily for small Chinese, Chinese small country-run uh, countries, but there you go. But also, I mean, same, I mean, Hong Kong. Hong Kong would have always been regarded as being the 
the great bastion of capitalism, red and tooth and claw, but it actually has a universal payer uh, free healthcare system, isn't it? Which works apparently very, very well. Very well. All right, what have you got for me, Michael? What's the last thing you have? The last thing I have, Gary, is an opinion poll, which is telling us what the people of Ireland are saying in their hearts about how they feel about the lovely politicians. This is yet another opinion poll. I think this is number four, certainly number three. And I, I have to comment on this, this poll, Michael, before it starts. What's that? I find it difficult to believe, for this reason. I can see the government doing so poorly that massive amounts of their vote shares goes to independence and Sinn Féin and the communists and all of those people, like the lunatics. Yes, yes. But in your heart of hearts, Michael, do you really believe that this government is now doing so badly that Fianna Fáil is going up? <laughs> um, I just I just don't see it. I no longer have any pretense to understanding what goes on in the, the minds and the hearts of the people of Ireland. They're an alien nation to me. I wish them well, but I do not understand them. I mean, Sinn Féin 29 down 1. Fine Gael 23 down 1. Social Democrats 6, no change. People for profit 4 plus 1. Labour 4 minus 2. Green Party 4, no change. Ain 2, 4 plus 1. Independence 7 minus 2. Fianna Fáil, 19 plus 4. Who are the people who are looking at this going, you know, I don't like the going on of Labour, the social, or Labour, Fine Gael, or Sinn Féin. I'm going to put it in on Fianna Fáil. Maybe these are the people that I was talking about before who had voted for Fine Gael previously. Maybe historically, long, long time ago, Fianna Fáil voters, Fianna Fáil family. And in the context of Zapone and Coveney and Leo and etc, etc, etc. We're going, oh, jeez, oh, that Finnegan crowd. They won't vote for Sinn Féin or the lefties. So they're grudgingly saying, well, well, fuck it, we'll vote for Fianna Fáil instead. Because Fianna Fáil, in this case, have clean fingers and clean hands. They are uninvolved. The pie is not of theirs. They are standing by and looking shocked and horrified that people could be leaking from the cabinet or be involved in cronyism or be telling porcupines to doll committees, Fianna Fáil are not involved in them. But Michal Martin, for the sake of the country and the good of the people, is willing to trudge along, even with these ghastly people, in government with them. Maybe this is those people. I don't know. Gary, I don't understand how the Social Democrats have 6%. I mean, how? What are they? I mean, what is new? The Social Democrats go up, but Labour goes down. Really, what's the difference? Who are, I mean, I don't understand anything. Sinn Féin is down one and Fine Gael is only, Fine Gael is only down one. You say you can't understand Fine Gael being up four, but Fine Gael is only down one. And now, I know it doesn't work like this, Gary, but Labour is down two. Does that suggest that Labour has lost votes to Fianna Fáil because Labour is down two and Fianna Fáil is up four? So who's the Labour voter that's looking at what's going on and thinking, no, I'm not voting Labour, I'm voting Fianna Fáil. When Sinn Féin going down one, into going up one, that seems... That, I, I, can, I can buy that. Independence going down two, two going to Fianna Fáil. Yeah, I could see that. I'm not sure why the independence would go down, but a lot of the independents are that more... They, they would be... In most countries, there would be a socially or fiscally conservative party there that those people would be in. 
But then if they're going to Finnefall, why would they go to Finnefall right now? I don't know. And then, like, where does the other 2% come from? Finnegale and Labour? I don't know. <laughs> I've got people prefer profit go up as well. Yeah, so I would I would suggest that if there's that, the, the Sinn Féin down one, uh, people prefer profit up one is maybe a more direct transference there, more obvious connector. I don't, I don't. I don't know. It, it seems a very bizarre set of movements for a poll. Having said that, may be absolutely correct. Or the trend, at least, might be absolutely correct. I just don't know why it would be. It's just a poll. I mean, I, don't, I do not believe in outliers. I just don't. I think that once in every thousand, you get an outlier. But this notion, everybody has... You get a poll and it looks weird, looks odd. You think, oh, it's an outlier. They just got... No. Sometimes it's just people are funny and they give a funny answer. And sometimes what looks like an outlier turns out to be on the nose. They're just trends. They're just descriptors of trends. If we were a month out from an election, then you might look down and go through it and, and see how they'd broken it down for gender and how they'd broken it down uh, for urban view rural and the demographics and see maybe if there was oversampling one and undersampling another. And that would be fascinating. Maybe people just really disliked Mark McSherry. I just briefly, very briefly. Mark McSherry is getting an awful of shtick at the moment because he referred to the fact that Tina Fall is in some sense a socialist party. And one of the, it, I would like to, maybe return to this at another time to talk more difficult. We have, we seem to have um, at the moment, maybe an incredible lack of the of ability with our political journalists, etc., to understand that the tra- that some traditional definitions of left and right, as have as people use them, don't make any difference. Or, or sorry, don't make any sense. That we shouldn't. Ass- we have a an inability to understand that there is diversity and nuance. It is. Accepted because the Irish Times tells us that Fianna Fáil is a party of the right. It is a conservative party, right? Fianna Fáil, at the time of its founding, and I would say all the way through up to the 1987 government with Hawhey and McSherry, was a party of the left. Okay, I suppose here's to crystallise the thing. In the early 1920s, the international, the socialist international in Moscow, in the so under the under the direction of the Soviet government, made a statement, a bit like a statement coming from the Vatican, which said that Marxist Leninism is the only legitimate form of socialism, and all other forms of socialism are essentially forms of reaction, being used as tools by the bourgeoisie in order to continue the alienation and enslavement of the proletariat. The notion that the only form of socialism that exists, which is a true and correct and legitimate theologically orthodox socialism, is some kind of Marxist socialism, is just fucking non- ahistorical nonsense and bullshit. The English have their own tradition of socialism, which is not Marxist. You, the utopian socialists, uh, the Chartists, etc. Gladstone was a man of the left in the 19th century. Fianna Fáil may have been a party of social conservatives, they may not have been progressives, they may have been religious and all of that, but they believed in redistribution, 
they believed they were they didn't believe in free trade they believed in tariffs they believed in all these beautiful is and was a party of the left the fact that it wasn't a socially progressive party does not mean it wasn't a party of the left but gary people seem to be incapable of entertaining a notion that there may be more than one way of doing things and just because lenin tells me something is socialism i don't have to believe that and you don't have to believe it just because the irish times tells you it and but people seem to think it's just a, a, a comical no i'm not saying it certainly wouldn't have been true i was particularly fond i'm not i would i would advocate for Philip all to be a party of the left i'm not a man of the left at, at all but this notion that there is only one way of being left-wing, there's only one way of being socialist, is really tedious. And it, well, it also perhaps just reflects on the level of historical understanding and education that people in the Irish Times and other media outlets have. I wouldn't like to say that, because that sounds unkind. And on this show, Michael, we don't say the unkind things. No, we, we, we make a point. Be kind. Well, Gary... Dear leader, if your listeners have ever seen out in the room, almost wears nothing but a series of T-shirts which just say "Be kind" on them. Mm-hmm. I think you invented that hashtag, didn't you, Gary? Be kind. It's quite possible. I, I've got to say, Michael, in, in my younger days, I drank quite heavily, so I can't quite remember. But I, it feels right. Yeah, I think so. I think I, I, I may have also created uh, "Live, Laugh, Love." That now that you say that, I ha- I I can't imagine anyone else except you. Having said originated that. Oh no! I mean, I just I just got wine drunk one day, and it was just all over my uh, apartment the next day. Then again, we do have a podcast which is basically a walking refutation of the phrase: "If you don't have something nice to say about someone, don't say anything at all." It is. I have often thought to myself: basically, one long extended sneer, jeer, and sarcastic comment. Yeah, but then again, that's something that is uniquely keyed to the Irish psyche. Anyway, Carrie, I suppose we shall be... What well, actually shall we be? No, we we are away all next week. But you never know. Keep your eye out, because we might drink port and decide to do it anyway. We're actually going to a very serious political conference, and we'll be making a lot of interesting... Uh, we'll be attending a lot of interesting uh, conference-style events talking to many people that are important at a European level. Have a great week, and we shall talk to you whenever we talk to you. All the best.